All right, all right, all right. Uh, we are back for episode four of Come As You Are with Christian Archer. Uh, thanks so much for the people that are uh, continuously tuning in and waiting uh, years <laughs> between episode releases. I am so sorry. Uh, we will definitely get that cleaned up for you. Um, but no need to fret because today I got an excellent episode to bring you guys. Today's episode is with the one, the only Fresh Daily. Uh, Fresh Daily is a Brooklyn-born and raised, Oakland-based hip-hop recording artist who has made a tremendous amount of impact on my life. I have been rocking with Fresh Daily for 10 to 12 years, I want to say, in terms of uh, uh, releases and, and streaming projects. And Fresh Daily particularly made a humongous impact on me when I was in high school. And uh, in this episode, I got to talk to him about it. I got to sit down with him and tell him exactly how he influenced and impacted my life in major ways. And I got to learn about who Fresh Daily was behind the music, what was going on between Mothership Land and The Quiet Life as two uh, most notable releases, uh, particularly in the underground uh, blog era of hip hop. And then what happened when he was recording The Brooklyn Good Guy and when he was running Beat House? And most recently, what made him come back years and years and years later to drop The Quiet Life 2, which dropped in late October? We got to get into all of that. We also got to talk about what's next for Fresh Daily, and it doesn't seem like he intends to uh, let up off of the uh, the gas, at least uh, not for another couple of years. So this was an incredible, an incredible conversation uh, and one that was deeply personal to me and kind of marks a milestone for the podcast. Um, so without further ado, I will let you guys get into it. Uh, please welcome the one and only Fresh Daily. Thank you guys so much. I feel like life is drifting in the wrong direction. And then it'll be gone like a lost connection. Hang it up. Get the picture from the art I'm sketching. Are you man enough? Are you built to manage? Up the stamina, fam. Life's cabin is solely the ravenous when that's on average. If you can't understand, I wish I had a better I'm glad you're here with us. And I'm, I'm glad that, like you said, that, that this year, the past almost two years <laughs> at this point have actually been a positive um, event for you in some ways. And I think the other interesting you th thing you said there was, how do we kind of navigate our own good fortune within this terrible, terrible time in history? You know, um, and, and uh, can you explain to me, I guess, your, your um, sensitivity around this and, and kind of how you have found um, how have you navigated this for yourself and what do you think the 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 right way to move when when you are blessed with good fortune and, and this dark time is you know um for me it's been more like what not to do right so for me i i know that it, it's a hard time so for me i make sure that the language that i use um mostly on social media um is not like you know, I know this, I know this pandemic is hard, but you know, I, I've, cause I've seen this, I've seen people say, you know, this pandemic has been a, a, you know, quietly, subversively a blessing for me. That's a language that I try to avoid because that focuses on the self and not the bigger picture. So that's right. one way I've just been moving is not saying this pandemic has been a blessing for me. You know, because it hasn't been told that one, it's that's not entirely true. And two, it that it sort of negates others not 
it not being a blessing for them. So that's right. one way I've just moved is the language very specifically, because I think it's okay to, you know, celebrate your wins publicly and just give thanks, uh, maintain that attitude of gratitude. And that's how I've kind of circumvented, you know, um, being maybe possibly tone deaf or not reading the room in terms of existing in this pandemic world now that we have. Yeah. It's like a, a certain, if you, if you're not careful, you can, it, you can almost make it seem like it's a person's fault if they mm. haven't, if they haven't uh, been able to experience good fortune or kind of yes. experience these quantum leaps that maybe others have been very fortunate to, to experience over the past two years. Um, do you feel, do you feel like when, when COVID started, what did you kind of uh, strap in for? Um, and, and how did you kind of adapt your psychology to, to kind of face uh, whatever was, whatever came next? How, how are you equipped to deal with this? You know, I, I try to avoid that chicken little mentality of the sky is falling, the sky is falling, you know? Yeah. Uh, I don't think it serves anyone that sort of panic, but I just tried to be as informed as possible. But that very relaxed attitude comes off as ambivalence or nonchalance. And mm -hmm. I, I really, and, you know, even my loved ones, like my girlfriend thought, like, you know, I was taking kind of an ostrich approach to like, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist, sticking my head in the sand. And that, that really wasn't it. I, you know, um, I think there were times uh, when it initially happened, there was, I was like, oh, this is it. The world is going to fall into pandemonium, but I can't externally freak out about that. Mm -hmm. I just have to really kind of educate myself and, and pace myself and see what's going to happen before I jump the gun and assume let's, let's see what's going to happen. So sir, you know, I definitely went, I didn't buy up all the toilet paper in the stores. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't, I didn't do that, but I definitely did start to day by day. I, I made sure that I quarantined with my girlfriend and I made sure she stayed in. She's asthmatic. I made sure she stayed in. And, um, you know, a friend of mine who passed away, his mother now lives in Oakland. And I made sure that I did her grocery shopping, our grocery shopping, and another uh, friend of mine uh, who, who lives in Oakland as well. I called her and I said, hey, I'm going to the supermarket. It doesn't make sense for us all to go out and risk our <laughs> risk our health. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty healthy. I'll mask up. I'll glove up. Let me just, you know, send me your, your grocery list and I will hop in the car and grab everyone's groceries, you know, and like that was my sort of mentality. Like, it doesn't make sense for us all. Let's try to minimize this and I'll be the grocery emissary. <laughs> and, and so I did that, you know, I did that for the first couple of weeks um, just to kind of minimalize it. And that was kind of like my strategy of like keeping my loved ones safe yeah. as much as I could. And, um, you know, I'm out here in California and my family, my immediate family is back home in New York. So, you know, just being in communication with my mom and telling her, hey, you know, try to minimize going out as much as possible. And same with my dad. My dad is now retired. He retired in the middle of the pandemic. He was, he still had a couple <laughs> of years to go and he was just like, 
<laughs> nah, nah, fuck that. Nope, mm-mm, nope. Not yeah. going. Not going to work anymore. But this is crazy. Um, congrats but, to pops. That's, that's yeah, amazing. Congrats to pops. He he jumped ship. <laughs> he definitely jumped ship. He was like, nope. Um, seen enough. Seen enough. He was out. <laughs> he he retired early. Um, but that's yeah. That's how I maneuvered at the beginning of this. I mean, it was like I said earlier. It was unprecedented and scary times. Yeah. Is um, but you know, really not panicking i think um really saved a lot of my mental well-being is like not immediately going to worst case scenarios but i definitely was like oh i need to get a gun now (laughs) (laughs) i still haven't done it but i was like i need a gun because the world is gonna fall into chaos and disarray uh i think the craziest thing i i did was like um bought all like semi non-lethal weapons i bought a stun gun <laughs> I, I i watched this like youtube video of like what's the what's the most painful non-lethal weapon i could get and this guy was talking this like self-defense guy was talking about he was just raving about this sort of uh handheld whip that's only like the length maybe of an arm and it's kind of like made of uh like bike lock material you know like the, that kind of rubbery bite and it's crazy he's like and it has this like point if you're ever in a car and your car is an accident you need to break out the window you can break the window like this and i was like one of those oh, all in one like a really thing. good that seems like a really good weapon to have. <laughs> and i bought this stupid whip and so there's a whip in my car now <laughs> and it's the most crazy thing but it's just like uh, he's you know he was demonstrating it and like even like lightly tapping herself on the arm with it is so painful <laughs> so i was like i hope i never have to use this on anyone man isn't it wild how quickly like we can as humans we just shift from like all right everything's normal going through the normal hustle and bustle to i have to be in defense mode i have to yeah. figure out how to pro- like you you literally were like I have to find out who is in my doomsday tribe and I have to keep them close. I have to establish myself as the ringleader. I have to make sure that there is this exchange of trust, communication going on. And then I got to buy weapons to protect us. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I'm a, I'm a lover of like, you know, post-apocalyptic films and anime and manga and, um, you know, dystopian world, just, just for that reason that I always place myself in, in those yep. scenarios and like, holy shit, what would I do if I was there? Probably die. But <laughs> like, I'm out of, I'm out of shape. I'm like, I don't know how to, you know, survive in the wild. You know, I definitely bought like, like how to survive in the wild books, which I still haven't read because <laughs> things didn't turn out as dystopian as I, I thought they may have. Almost. But um, yeah, but it's, it's kind of nutty. I definitely I definitely bought more sneakers than weapons in the <laughs> pandemic. It's it's crazy, dude. Well, you know what you you were investing uh, for for the better days, and the better days seem like they're coming at some point, and you'll be prepared to to stay fresh daily. Right on. But um, sorry. But um, I, I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, man. Um, <laughs> but uh, I over here did not for some reason anticipate. Like I put myself in that position too. Like you said, like I'm a huge. I'm a huge nerd behind closed doors. And like, I'm convinced that if things really go south, the people that are going to survive this thing are all the kids that played like Fallout 3 and Fallout 4. Mm-hmm. 
probably all those Minecraft kids too that just have these these digital survival skills. They're going to see things a little bit more intuitively than the people that have just been on Instagram all day, you know. So it's um, it is funny how partaking in video game culture and anime and all these things pre- prepares you for for life just to go fucking batshit at any at any point. Um, I wanted to ask a question. So when you right when this happened, so you have been you've you've said that you've experienced a, a chain of good events within COVID. Do you feel like this was uh, uh, bound to happen outside of the COVID container? Or do you feel like a mentality that you kind of formulated helped to kind of uh, welcome these things to your doorstep? Was it a choice you made that that brought these these opportunities, these these good events um, forward? Or, or, um, or what? Kind of explain to me a little bit about, to, to preface that, for me, it very much felt like in the beginning of COVID that we were going to see a branch, you know, between the people that are actually uh, going to experience and live through this event. There will be those that can find ways to continually maybe learn, grow, take care of themselves, I think is the most important one, like really find self-care in some sense. And I think even the most minimal form of self-care was enough to make a difference for a lot of people. And then there is another branch of people who were going to self-destruct, who maybe were not equipped uh, to deal with isolation, with loneliness, with with thoughts that may have been very loud for so long, but that have been easy to quiet down because of just, you know, normal life distractions. Do you or feel like you had to make a decision? Too. Yeah, external stimulus. Do you feel like you had to make a, de- a similar decision where you're like, I'm going to be on this branch and avoid this branch at all costs? And how do you think that played into your good fortune? You know, um, I, I walked the fine line between realism and optimism just because I come from the very bottom, right? So that gives me a weird perspective in the sense that I know things could be horrendously worse. And that perspective, I think, keeps me pretty even keeled. Although sometimes I, I want to say it makes me maybe not as emotionally sensitive to to others who are going through it because I look at others' um, low points like, ooh, do you think that's a low point? You know, <laughs> like, oh, that's your low point, you know, because I get lower or but I realize now, you know, this is all sort of self-realizations that ha- have happened over the pandemic, honestly, um, that, you know, like everyone's low points is like relative to theirs and that you, I really can't judge someone else's low point by my low point. Mm. But I say that to say that my my perspective personally for me is generally like, you know what, shit, shit has been worse. So. And if, if it's here, it can it it can get better, and that's kept kept me v- very even keeled. So, I think some of these opportunities were going to happen with or without the pandemic happening. I mm-hmm. think the pandemic was one of those things that brought together two things that generally don't come together for me very often, which is time. And money, right? So mm-hmm. usually, if I have the time, means I don't have the money because <laughs> right. I have the time. And if I have the money, it means I don't have the time because I'm yeah. so busy getting the money. So this was one of those, I guess, fortuitous times that I had both time and money. And so I time to create and the money to execute those ideas. And that that was a rare occurrence. That was a blue moon. That was the aligning of planetary things <laughs> the as in my life generally there hasn't been many many times where i had both time and money 
and not and not money in excess, just enough to execute ideas that I that I had and and money that came from creative endeavors, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, and 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 I guess the wherewithal to be like, you know what, um, I should do this now that you know, now that I have the time and the money. Because very often I think we'll have both time and money and we we don't strike, you know, for whatever reasons life is is wherever we take we take personal time. But yeah. I guess I wanted to be tenacious and say, yay, and enterprising and say, you know what, if I'm gonna do this might as well <laughs> might as well do it now, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I resonate with the with the idea of uh, sometimes we'll have both time and money and we won't be able to, 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 to lay that strike. As, as you mentioned, that's something that I've really felt in the past year. And I've, I've kind of battled with in COVID with even getting this podcast up and running my full-time work that I do is, is a product designer, you know, so I design digital experiences, but it's, it's, it's very fun and I've arrived there very naturally and I'm passionate about it. But it's the music behind the scenes that kind of inspires the flows that that moves moves me as a human that has really driven me to my core um, and doing things like having conversations with you, um, who has been uh, honestly, and I'm about to get into this, a formative character um, in my life is is amongst the the highest pleasures that I can experience. But even knowing that this immense reward. Um, and connection lies right beyond the edge of my comfort zone. And I have the resources to execute. I still find executing to be the hardest thing ever. Um, mm. and, and I don't know what that's about. Like I, I, I recorded my last episode in, I want to say maybe June, um, June or so. And um, that was, again, when I'm in this seat and I'm interviewing and talking to people like you, I feel better than at any point in my life. I feel more connected, more, uh, synergy with what I'm doing than, and than any other time. Um, but after that, um, it's been since June and I haven't, I haven't released an episode and it's like always this inner dialogue of, of, uh, you have the resources, you have the time and it, it's, why don't you do it? Um, and I guess it's, it's kind of a fear of, of, rejection. Um, and then now we're in a digital age where eyes always feel like they're on. Um, mm. and, uh, there is a pressure. There's a huge pressure, but I, I, I hypothesize it's very much self self-induced. I, I, I read something, um, in a book, deep work by Cal Newport recently, um, okay. who was basically like advocating for everybody to quit their social media. And he was like, the reason why is like, people will tell themselves you can't grow a podcast without social media. But what social media really is more like is we expect it to be this auditorium where everybody has their eyes on us and they're looking right at us, waiting for our next move, waiting for our next release, our next drop. And he was like, social media is really much more like you're at a job trade show and you have mm. a booth, but the the aisle your booth is in runs for millions of miles. And as people pass you by, you're doing, you're flipping the signs, you're, you're doing all your crazy dances to try to get them to, to stop for a second. But I mean, even, even so, like that's where the pressure comes from, but it, it there, there's a certain level of, um, I guess like what you said, stars aligning that, that really, um, helps exacerbate the decision to actually create. Um, and I imagine that this is something that, that you have ruminated on quite deeply considering you're 
your last release before before the Quiet Life Two, a full project, was in twenty twelve. I want to say the Brooklyn Good Guy uh, digitally, and then twenty thirteen on vinyl. What was the twenty thirteen project? Uh, twenty thirteen was the same exact project, just uh, physical on release <laughs> on vinyl release. Yeah, right, uh, and it was a European exclusive. So, man. I just started getting into vinyl. Actually, you know what? Very quickly, I have, I have here one of your ultra rare appearances on Physical Wax. Whoa, Fred fades, dude. This um, well, first off, you Ivan Av, um, what a beast, um, what a beast. and I, dude, I was so I was him, stoked when I saw him as a feature on a on on, on the Quiet Life too. Uh, of and course, he killed, he, he killed it. He killed it. He's he's uh, I think he's one of the most consistent and under under appreciated MCs in the game right now. And he has been for for a while. Um, and I wonder if it's just the fact that he's from Norway that kind of keeps him from from breaking into the the uh, I guess the, uh, the higher mainstream, I guess. Well, 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 here's a question. What do you consider higher mainstream? Because I think I, I, I think he's relatively successful in his field. Yeah, I actually I redact that um, because it's like also the mainstream is not where I want Ivan Av to be. It's not where I want Fresh Daily to be. You know, it's like you guys have served in a in a niche and you guys have made impact on people with your music in very in very profound ways um, that have not benefited from mainstream appeal. Anyway, so you it's been a while since you have dropped an album and you released yes. The Quiet Life two two days ago. Yes. And um, I would love to dive really deep into kind of the, the creative process behind that, why you felt now is the time. But first, I kind of want to ramp this up kind of from the jump because you've been making music for a little bit and I want to see what's kind of fueled that. Uh, but first off, let me tell you a little bit about myself and like kind of how I encountered Fresh Daily in the wild um, okay. and, and what that's been like. So um, when I was 16, no, 15, 16, around that age, I started really falling in love with hip hop, and of course, I kind of started with with the uh, I, with the starter pack, right? Tupac, uh, Biggie Smalls, a Tribe Called Quest, um, and and really started um, experiencing what hip hop was like that I wasn't hearing on the radio, which at the time I don't know was like Pitbull or something, <laughs> um, and it was a completely different world and learning experience for me. Actually, listening to the stuff that that served as the foundation for so many so many great artists, but there was a distinct point in high school for me um, where I started discovering music blogs um, and really started spending a lot, like a lot of time on music blogs. And I think where I found you, you just released, you just released Mothership Land. Wow. I want to say I encountered it either on Two Dope Boys or does, um, does iHeartDilla.com mean anything to you? Yes, yes. Jessica runs iHeart. Well, she used to. I don't know if she still does. My yeah, friend Jess. That's um that was a moment in time, wasn't it? That that blog yeah. and the the, the people well, that shout out Jess, that, bro. Shout out Jess one time. <laughs> yeah, man. Shout out Jess. You you put me on to so many, so much good music. As soon as I found out I loved Jay Dilla and I found a blog that was specifically catered around like um giving a highlight to artists who were really carrying on his legacy in some way or another. And it was like, it was the most valuable thing on the internet to me. Like, I was like, this is, this was my watering hole. And I returned time and time and time again. 
Um, and so I remember coming across mothership land for the first time and I was immediately captured by just dude, the, the artwork, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is like still one of my favorite pieces of album art ever. It is just absolutely beautiful. It is original and like scrolling down two dope boys. It popped out like nothing else. Like album, album art for mixtapes was not like necessarily elite back in 20. 20- 10 um yeah wow it's like 2010 and 2011 i want to say yeah and so i downloaded it right put it right into my itunes um got it right onto my ipod and um was the volume a little low on that (laughs) i found that like later on like i would listen to that project and then another song would come on in my itunes and the volume would be so so high and like, oh, <laughs> shit i guess you know i guess the engineer who mixed it mixed it kind of low yeah but there's growing pains huh there's, yeah there's, uh, artistic growing pains that you don't really think about is like is this gonna mix with everybody else's itunes library i actually don't remember if it was low okay but what, I, what i do remember dude is hitting play on this for the first time and then hearing a chick, chick, ah. and then what proceeded was just one of the most memorable musical journeys I've had to date. Um, and when I finished it, I ran it back. And when I finished it, I ran it back. And mm. dude, I, I, I have spent probably collective days um, with this project in my earphones. I would wander down my high school halls listening to this album just front to back in between periods. Anytime I got a chance, I was, I was listening. And what I didn't understand then was actually a lot of uh, a lot of the the beat selection on there. There were there were Jay Dilla beats on there. There were Flying Lotus beats. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't know Astral Dance was a Flying Lotus beat until mm-hmm. like five years after. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> you know. But um, that off flying that was off uh, Flying Lotus's Cosmogramma. Yep, yep. And the beat selection, but also the lyricism, the sampling taste, everything you did on that project was just so right and 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 impactful and, and what i needed um, at the time and i became so fascinated with your perspective um and i think one of the reasons why so i i lived in brooklyn for about five or six years i lived in carroll gardens went to ms447 uh, moved out to new jersey for high school in essex county with my family um and i encountered i encountered mothership land right after moving to new jersey Um, and I was dealing with this identity crisis, whereas like the past couple of years in Brooklyn, man, it was like when everybody was wearing dinosaur junior dunks and, and Mm -hmm. De La Soul dunks and wearing their, 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 uh, I love that era. That was a great, that was a great time, man. Everybody's wearing their American apparel, skinny jeans and and just, (laughs) just getting, it was, it was, the energy was palpable. Um, and I identified with it so much, man. It was like, that was the era where I went from like child to young adolescents learning how to express himself in a healthy way and like Mm -hmm. really starting to understand like what, 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 what attracts me, what resonates with me. And Brooklyn started becoming a part of my identity. And I, that I was somebody who moved from new Orleans at at a young age to, to New York. Mm -hmm. Um, and Brooklyn gave me a confidence that I didn't have. It gave me an exposure that I never had before. Cultural um, exposure too, you know? Cultural exposure. You know, I came from New Orleans where I went to a private school and I was, there was, I think there was one, one black kid in the whole entire school. Um, I didn't even know, this is going to sound crazy. I didn't even know Jewish people existed before I knew York. I heard wow. about like, 
Like it was, it was something I had no exposure to. I knew that Christianity was everywhere. White people were everywhere. And, and there were like black people about, but moving to New York, my mom told me on like, uh, my first day of, of middle school or no, it was fifth grade. She was like, all right, go walk yourself to school. I was like, what? I was like, what do you mean? You're not going to drop me off. Like, wh- what do you mean? What's going on here? And, um, man, it's, it's Brooklyn, Brooklyn initiates you. You know, I remember yeah. just, just walking around Brooklyn and just waiting for my mom to let me in. And there's a high school that was like, uh, that let out right near where we lived in Carroll gardens. And I remember just standing there in the cold in the winter, I was like maybe 11 or something. And a bunch of high school kids just started packing snowballs and dude belting them at me. I was like, I did nothing I did nothing to deserve this, like right. this beating. You grew up quick in New York. You grow up quick, man. You grew up quick. So that was this was such a learning experience for me growing up in New York and becoming a teenager. That when I got transplanted to New Jersey, man, I resented the place. I was all of a sudden in suburban New Jersey. I remember walking into school with my skinny jeans and my dunks and my my big ass parka with like the fur collar mm-hmm. um, and um, North face and shit. yeah, and everybody else at this place were wearing like just like shapeless like Nike sweatpants and and just like I couldn't even name what types of Jordan right. they were like they right. I knew they were like <laughs> yeah some shit like that. It's a Jordan. It has Jordan. <laughs> And I'm like, those aren't, those aren't Jays, man. Right. <laughs> it's crazy how judgmental New York makes you. I, I, I've been experiencing like yes. crazy fish out of water since I got here. And I've had to un, unlearn that and undo it in so many ways, especially in my relationship. My, 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 my girlfriend's from here and she's just like, you're mean. And I'm like, no, I, I promise you. I'm not. She's like, you're I love so everybody. Dude. It's a beast. It's a, it beast. a beast. It's a beast of a place. It's a beast, but it's it's like uh, it's, it's like no other. It's like no other. And people that that ex- have that experience in Brooklyn, it doesn't matter where you're from. If somebody asks you ten years later where you're from, you're gonna you're gonna try to tell them. You're like, I'm from Brooklyn. You yeah. know, um, <laughs> and it's like, you could have been born in anywhere, but it's like mm-hmm. it, the place built it builds you. You know, it yeah. creates your character. And so I found Mothership Land when I was in this identity crisis stage where I was like, I feel so isolated from, from the place that, that birthed me as, as, a, as a thinking young adult. Your music helped me kind of find home whilst, while being so far away from it, you know, like listening to Sty in my mind and, and, and walking through the halls, like it was, it was bringing me back. Like I was all of a sudden yeah. like back to like walking to my friend's house in Clinton Hill and stopping at crown fried chicken and getting yeah. that, that sandwich where they the put the, the French fries in and the shit. And like, um, I was, oh, uh, man. you're making me homesick. <laughs> Sorry, man. Uh, we're homesick together, I think right now, but it helped me, it helped me find my identity and really kind of bolster this, this association I had with Brooklyn from afar. And, mm. uh, your, your album was the perfect um, container for it, but more so, man. And what, what really I learned in the later years, and especially with everything going on with black lives matter and understanding systemic oppression, your music really helped introduce me and serve as like kind of a, um, a palette introduction to Afrocentricity, um, Mm. and kind of understanding that there's a difference, uh, between, or I want to say this, say this in a, in a way that does, it doesn't, come off as offensive, but I didn't understand 
at the time that there was a difference between being black and then being black and proud, you know, mm. because in, in mainstream, what I would hear on music on Z100, you know, you wouldn't hear about being black and proud. Right. You wouldn't hear about that. So when I, when I listened to Mothership Land and I was hearing um, Paul Mooney talk about the drums have power, you know? <laughs> Drum power. <laughs> yep. And, and Paul Mooney. Yeah. And when, when, uh, when I was listening to your lyrics and you're like, when I think of cops, all I think is the sodomy. I remember there was that, there was that case when I was After living Lima. in Brooklyn where they sodomized the man that was on, in the subway. And I was starting to understand at a young age that like my experience is not the experience, that there's right. something else going on. This was still foreign to me, but that through this struggle and through the strife of being black in America, there was a, a collective, there was a community that was finding ways to, to uplift and build. And express, and express ourselves in this. It's funny you, you brought up that line because that line is a nod to Adler, Abner Luima, the, the Haitian man who was sodomized by the police force with, with a plunger handle. And I, I remember m me and my mother marched in protest across the Brooklyn Bridge for Abner Luima. Um, but it also, that line is also um, a double entendre in the sense that, you know, the rape of the community by police, the stop and frisk, the, the, the constant against your will presence, you know, in, in moving to California, I really realized how much of a police state New York is, how much of a police presence there is mm -hmm. and, and how much of it is really racially motivated, you know? Um, yeah. And so that line really is a nod to the unwanted forced oppression of, um, police jurisdiction and and in uh, worldwide really but very specifically in brooklyn yeah absolutely and that was like that was what i understood i was like when i think like that you are not the only one that mm -hmm. that associates cops with acts of violence acts of oppression acts of rape um for lack of a better word and and th that was really important for me as as a young white passing latino like growing up in new jersey to understand like that this is an aspect of society that I have to not only deal with, but I have to educate myself about. And the primary lane for that became through hip hop, man. It became through music. Hip hop from, saved our lives, yo. Straight up, like straight up. And, and from, from you, I was able to, to really kind of uh, dive deeper in, into Afrocentric Afro music. Um, yeah. And I was able to look back on, on Tribe Called Quest and like have more context, you know? And I was able to look back at Tupac and have more context. Biggie Smalls, have more context. But more so, it you really helped create the palette for, for the hip hop I would listen to going forward. Um, I refer to- This is amazing. This, and this is amazing. I'm, I'm really grateful that, one, I'm glad that, I, you know, I agreed to do this, but Two, this is like really uh, reaffirming for me because, you know, when you put out, especially in that era, the blog era, when mm -hmm. you put out music, you put it out uh, and everyone was putting out music for free. You know, it was yep. it was the gold rush of the Internet, that era of from like, I want to say like 09 to 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 2012 was a nutty like couple years where everyone was i remember cur every time i opened my laptop currency had a new project <laughs> or someone but currency you know it was this, it was this or, or charles or charles hamilton had a new something out every week it felt like you know every day damn near 
But, you know, when you do that, um, you know, people are downloading because you can see the numbers, but they're just they're just zeros and ones. They're just, you know, you don't know who the fuck is really out there, like in the world, listening and ingesting and these words, some of these experiences uh, that you have and your ideas that you put out to the world. You don't really know. You know, they show up. Some people show up at your shows, but as big as, you know. New York is a microcosm culturally. You, you you go there, like you said, it's like nowhere else. But it get it can be very uh, it can very. It, I'm trying to find the right word here. It can be very insular, in the sense that I've got my hip my little hip hop community, and we see each other at shows. And after a while, the the faces be, you see recognize the faces. So I mean that doesn't count. I know those people fuck with me. And I know they listen to my music and those are fans and those are quantifiable people I can point at and say, this person has bought my music. And sometimes, you know, in New York, after a show, we might go to a diner <laughs> and, and I, we had, I had no qualms with telling fans like, yo, we're going to go eat at Kellogg's after this. If you want to roll, you know, I, you know, that's the type of indie rap artist I was, and I still am. Um, but when, you know, my first mixtape drop, I was, I was telling someone the other day, the first mixtape drop, it kind of broke the first blog that hosted it. You know, it was like 30,000 downloads. They had no idea that many people were going to come and download it. I don't know who those 30,000 people are, and I don't know Mm -hmm. where they're from. The WWW stands for World Wide Web. I don't know. I don't know who these people are. So to hear you have these very singular experiences from something that was, and what I'm about to tell you is going to really break your mind. (laughs) Because <laughs> Mothership Land is a breakup, was essentially a breakup album. The The girl I was seeing had broke up with me and trying to socially sabotage me, which is why the record starts off that way. <laughs> you know, and like, I was kind of going through a really interesting transitional period. The, uh, the project that preceded that was The Quiet Life, which was this bright, sunny, feel good, good vibe, uh, you know, Call to tribe, call quest, call to Dilla, call to you know these these sunny, optimistic moments that I experience. And up up until that point, most of my music, I guess, kind of sounded similarly, you know. And you know, it's very jazzy, very lo-fi, very you know, the quiet life. It it was it was as it said. But then Mothership Land, uh, I want to say, was almost in a weird way a companion project because it came out a year later, and it was like here's the underbelly in a, through a cultural lens. Um, and I wasn't trying to be, uh, politically conscious, but more socially conscious and, and kind of break down, uh, my relations with the world and my relations with the people in my immediate circle and, and my relations with the women I dated and my relations, how I, you know, just viewed, um, culture and and blackness and sort of really present that so to hear you how you ingested and how how you took it is just it's affirming but it's blowing my mind at the same time you know (laughs) yeah i i I, you probably didn't expect that mothership land would drop and change the life of some white kid in new jersey and i didn't see that coming no (laughs) i didn't see that but to hear it to, to hear it is is insane you know like it yeah yeah, man. Well, it's um, to, to continue speaking on, on its impact for me, you know, at this time, you also helped me like, and, and because of the blog era, but because of how, how this project kind of helped refine my palette for future 
for future projects and, and artists. Um, I kind of referred to this period in time as like the Brooklyn Renaissance, like with what was going on musically out there. Mm. It was, it was, I was actually, I, I started writing hip hop music uh, when I was 16, 17, and I was going to name my first project, the Brooklyn Renaissance, because I felt like I was part of it, even though I was all the way in New Jersey, like it felt, mm. it felt like I was somehow like in this crew. And, and it was like, it was you fresh daily si- science. I don't know. Yeah. I never know how to pronounce his name, but like science. Science, just science word. Okay, science. great. But like he he dropped the Ella tape, which was just like another ma- like masterpiece of the blog yeah. era to me, right? Am you I get- on that one? I am on that one, right? I'm on yeah. Ella. No, yeah, you're, you're on Ella. You're on, okay. you are on Ella. I was like, I know I'm on a cover agent. <laughs> I don't know which one it was. I can't remember this song, but I'm, I'm almost positive you're on the Yeah, I'm on there. Um, and then Top Dollar Raz, the, the hey. new that, that was like, there were songs on that that also just helped really build me up as well. You want to um, hear a little tidbit for you? that You'll love this. You know who Top Dollar Raz is married to? No, no idea. I Heart Dilla Jess. Oh, man. There you How go. I love that. Everything just, just linked up right Everything there. Everything circled. Full circle. But that's what I'm saying. It was a community. Mellow yep. X. Like I, Mellow X on Amazed blew me away. I think I still know every word of Amazed. Like from that's front crazy. to back, everybody's verse. That's like an incredible song. Homeboy Sandman, uh, Sky Zoo, uh, and then like Noah Kane, like all of these people. Wow. Started, Noah. Dude, Noah is nasty. Noah. Oh, I want so much more for Noah, man. I want so much more for Noah. He's so, you want to talk about underrated? You you, you said, let's scratch Ivan Av being underrated. Ivan Av has received his flowers, I think. <laughs> okay. Noah right. Kane has not received his flowers. No, no. Noah Kane needs to needs, needs more flowers. In my he he is one crazy. of the nastiest bar for bar lyricists I have He's heard. Really period. super dope. Yeah. Period. You're throwing me back here. This is amazing, dude. The it's off dope. season was that was it? I think that was the name of the the I album. I think so. The off season that was just like, oh my gosh! I would I remember I'd learn all the lyrics just to like rap to keep up, and I was like, that, that this was a moment in time for me, man. But it's like from here, it made it so much easier to digest. Kendrick Lamar's overly dedicated. Mm. Jay Cole's the warm up, the come mm. up. Uh, Saba, Saba's comfort zone. Like all of these, these artists now who are kind of seen receiving their flowers, as you would say, or in and, and Kendrick and Jay Cole's uh, case, just are goaded. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. Like it, it, it made it so. Like this was my focal point. And when I started writing music, I, I made sure to write music like this. You know, the stuff mm-hmm. that would make Fresh Daily pr- proud or and all these people. Um, and so it was it was really a beautiful moment in time. Um, and it was so formative for me, but more so exploring um, basically the, the, the conversations um, and the ideas that you put forth on Mothership Land and then followed up in, in A Quiet Life or in The Quiet Life kind of helped uh, crack me open to these ideas of Afrocentricity. Um, and, and when let's say um, Eric Garner, mm. Freddie Gray, this moment in time arrived a couple years later, it was so much easier for me to understand that, that the systemic oppression was a thing, that, that, that further education was required and that further allyship to, to people like me was, was necessary. Um, and so I think that is, that is a huge credit that musicians don't get nearly enough recognition for is like people learn through the music. My primary education when I, when I don't read is music. 
I do read, but I'm saying like it's an alternative educational source. Um, and and it's so important to infuse music with these elements of 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 being black and being proud. But I would love to I would love to know like why why did you find it so important to highlight this, to name drop Miles Davis, to put Paul Mooney um in in, in a skit? Why did you find it so important to highlight this like at that moment in time? And and how did you kind of arrive to have this confidence about about who you were? I think I wanted to really, you know, I'm I'm half Latino, half black. My mom is Puerto Rican, my father is black. And I was raised single parent by my mother. And so my sort of knowledge of self if you will, and sort of cultural identity didn't even happen for me fully until I was out of my mother's house or or starting to be in my late teens and kind of get an idea of who I am as, you know, because like, like I said, you know, like you said, rather, how I present, like, you know, is Black fully, you know, so that's, that's what I identify with most. I don't, I don't shy away from my Latino heritage at all. I speak Spanish, I, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm active. I could probably be more active culturally, but, um, you know, living as a black man and presenting as a black man and sort of like, um, finding a way to speak on. So something you should know about me is, you know, there are MCs have a lot of MCs in hip hop in general is very, uh, competitive. There's a competitive thread throughout hip hop of like, I gotta be the best. I'm better. And it's like, there's a lot of braggadocious talk in it. Um, and while I've done that myself, I'm not a competitive MC. I, I don't consider myself striving to the, be the best at rapper. You know, <laughs> I don't I don't care to be uh, better than other rappers. In though internally, I might think I might be better than rappers. That's not something externally that I care to dwell on all day. I like I like to talk shit in rap just as much as the next MC, but that, that striving to be the best, I mean, you can call it an underachiever or whatever. I don't have that. So for me, it's very important for me to then, if I'm not going to be the best, because I mean, you need a a very stringent set of rules to sort of quantify who's, who's going to be the best, right? How, how do we figure that out? So if I'm not going to, if I'm not going to play to that or cater to that sort of ideology of competitiveness. I just want to say how I feel in my perspective. That's my platform in hip hop. My platform in hip hop is to say how I feel and in the, in only the way that I can do so. Um, I think everybody is as unique as a thumbprint snowflake and they have their own unique, you have, you know, I'm the, I'm the sum total of my life Hmm. up until this point. So there, no one can, no one can talk on a topic exactly the same as I am because my viewpoint is original to me. And so I think that is everyone who is a creative, that is your power. Your power is how original you are. And as long as you stay true to that, as long as your compass needle stays north to that, you will be successful at what you do. If I mean, given that there's some skill to it as well. So for <laughs> me, it's really important to speak on the world as I see it in my way. And so that's what I did with Mothership Land was, uh, like I told you, like, uh, it was, uh, it's kind of a breakup pro- album. And 
they were all these all these cultural things that I hadn't expressed prior and that were happening in real time around me, right? So you think about hip hop being the sort of the voice of the voices, the 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 voice of the hood, the voice of the ghetto. Um uh, disenfranchised youth with no access to to instruments, taking turntables and looping break loops to make beat. Essentially, the the precursor to what beats would become with drum machines. Right, it was just two turntables looping the drum break of a record again and again and again, and then talking about it. Um, uh, a few years ago, a friend of mine asked me to say this sexy rhyme, so I'm about to say. You know what I mean? Like that type of shit. Like talking about broken glass everywhere people in the street and they just don't care like that type of shit uh the mc being the griot talking about what's happening in the hood what's happening around them from their perspective th- that's all i culturally tried to do with mothership land um there's even a track set that says how i feel <laughs> you know like that i think that kind of sums it up how i feel and there's tracks like good luck which is about losing losing a partner and then losing a someone who you thought was a, a close friend, you know, like I, I there's an MC, I'm not going to name him, but there's an MC who I was super, super close with. And then, you know, um, they entered a relationship with my old manager at the time, I guess. And once they got w- with them, they kind of like slowly socially faded me out in a weird way. Like, and I, I don't, I didn't hold it against them for like, you know, falling in love and being with their partner, but like that sort of like, man, we hung out tough. We shared everything. We, you know, road dogs to like, not even phone calls kind of scenario was really painful. So it was just like, how do you write a song about that, that exit strategy and how you would have wanted it to go versus how they handled it? And, you know, how do you lament a relationship, but all from this sort of cultural lens of like, this is, this is things that I think culturally we weren't taught, you know, songs like block knock, you know, rich kids uptown, poor kids downtown, you know, that, that sort of idea. Um, that's really what I wanted to talk about and on songs like space and time. And I was having these really interesting conversations um, with a friend of mine's mom who, you know, I'm really grateful for a shout out my homegirl Imani and her mom. Um, you know, not having a black mother is was also interesting because my mom doesn't really have much knowledge of self about her own Afro Latina identity. You know what I mean? She's someone who, as many Latinos are, are have been whitewashed. You know what I mean? So to to have to talk with a black woman at length about many things uh was also inspirational. So again, I mean to summarize, if you let me I'll I'll run on <laughs> to summarize it really it was just a singular viewpoint on the world around me and uh kind of trying to as me find you this this project is you listening to me sort of find my kind of kind of knowledge of self and cultural identity in real time you know as it was happening i would you know write about it record it write about it record it you know like uh and it was it, it was 
I'm very big on cathartic self-expression, you know, because otherwise there's a there's not a lot of uh, emotional output in my real day to day life. So mm. this is where it comes out. Yeah. And that's and that's kind of what and that's why hearing from you, you know, although miles apart, hearing from you, hearing how this uh, affected you is super mind blowing because these were things that were in my mind, very singular experiences. And I'm just like, I need to get this out. This is me regurgitating the world as I'm processing it, regurgitating it out through this filter. And that filter is me as fresh, you know? So, yeah. so for you to hear it and for it to affect you in any kind of ways is, is just kind of yeah. blowing my mind. Anytime people tell me that their mu- music, you know, some of this shit I thought of on the toilet, frankly, you know, like <laughs> I'm just sitting there, I've got time on my hands. I got my phone and I'm like, I'm just trying to express myself. And so to think like, yo, man, I was just, goofing off you know also a lot of this i wrote on the train it's you a know, solid place to write man it's a you can tune the world out you have your headphones on and just just writing on the train just back and forth back and forth you know um i used to work in the bronx i used to work in the bronx and during this time too some of this when i was i was staying with the girl who uh who the breakup was with and the relationship had already soured but i um I moved out. I was staying. I was I was in between apartments, and she she was really insistent that I I stay with her. But she lived all the way in the Bronx, like far in the Bronx. And I still, all my friends' family job was in Brooklyn, so I would have to travel, you know, over an hour to get to her house where I was staying, you know, with her whole family there, <laughs> and then come back to Brooklyn. That gave me a lot of time, and then. You know, over the course of the relationship, I would try to stay out as late as I could. So I would have to be there only sleep and leave in the morning. And then, you know, that played its that played its role on the relationship because I was I was very clearly absent. But when I finally moved out, it was such a relief. It was I was free, you know. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, that's that's where that's where in that time of riding the train. That's that's where I um, was able to write it out and how, get how, these thoughts out. How old were you when when you wrote uh, Mothership Land and and the following projects? Yeah, Mothership Land came out in August third, two thousand ten. Um, so I was just about to turn thirty. I was twenty nine, about to turn thirty. So and it's interesting. Oh, sorry, thirty is one of those years that gives you perspective. You know, you're like you're judged by your potential up until thirty. You know what I mean? And then after thirty, you're judged on your ability to cash in on that potential. So there was sort of a lot of societal pressure on me as well, and like all of this was happening. That's fascinating. It seems like what you were saying, like this was such a singular experience for you that that kind of became encapsulated in Mothership Land. But for me, it felt, and and I think this goes to speak to how unique we really all feel that we are in some sort of way, that all of our experiences are kind of these isolated incidents. But it really speaks to this larger, larger collective experience that we all really do share with each other across lines, across, across borders, across colors, across... Uh, ethnicities and races, and when I when I listened to Mothership Land, what I what I experienced was was that of a relatable re- relatable journey, you know, um, something that that I could find pieces to identify with, but also 
identities that were completely foreign to me that I knew I needed to learn more about. So um, it's, it's so fascinating to 10 years later, like unpack this with you after it's nuts. It's um, it's kind of it's kind of a moment for me, man. I've been I've been so excited to to have this conversation for for that reason and more. So talk me through. You went from mothership land to a quiet life, right? That's kind mm-hmm. of a that's kind of a bold title. And like you you already mentioned, like the uh, the soundscapes on here were much more positive, much more optimistic, much more sunny. Some of the some of the uh, the the production here is like still trapped in my head, and I know. Like uh, when I when I start playing Fresh is Gone, man, it's always like a blast to the past. Uh, Diamonds uh, featuring Chris Faust, like that beat to me is just I I that was I think the most played song on the album for me. But um, walk me through like what what was going on in, in your space at the time to where all of a sudden you wanted to highlight this idea of the quiet life. Man, those two projects are so close to each other. Sometimes I forget which came first. Like earlier in this interview, I mistakenly said Quiet Life came first because it, it almost feels like it did come first, but it came after. It was, uh, it was 2011. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it. But like I said, they're like brother. They're like brother projects. Like after something is because for for me, honestly, Mothership Land is kind of jarring to me like it's the it's sonically jarring from it's a departure or not necessarily a departure but it's a different side of like my ear for beats so my my ear for beats vacillates between these two points it's usually like very jazzy lo-fi boom bappy east coasty sample driven but feel good you know jay dilla-esque tribe called quest s sound that's Mm -hmm. what i would consider in my head very typical fresh daily shit right but with mothership land i had found i had found flying lotus and i had found devin who and i you know the, shout out the whole clip mode and Susie analog and uh i i had started to find these ill ass beats that were coming from the west coast and the midwest and knowledge and mind design and this was the beginning of that LA beat scene that Raj G and Bibiasi and and there was no one, no one on the East Coast rapping over these type of beats. And I heard that sound and I loved it immediately. And I was like, I'm gonna rap over this shit. You know, <laughs> like this is different type of shit. You think of man, the first the first time I, I had I had done something like that was this this record called Winter Fresh. It was over a Flying Lotus record. And there's a little bit of that on Tomorrow is Today. If you ever listened to Tomorrow is Today, that was the beginning of it, of that sound. So this was kind of like a f- starting to call back to some of that Tomorrow is Today. Tomorrow today was a little bit more electro poppy. It was more hipstery. Do you remember that kind of like hipstery era that sort of Mickey Fax rapping over Roy Scott type era? Like it was, it was kind of there. But this to me was the evolution of it. Um, With Mothership Land, I wanted to go dark. I wanted to go deeper. I wanted to go a little more trippy. I wanted to go a little more tribal. I wanted to. It's like when Dilla does his normal feel good Dilla shit, and then he goes into Dillatronic, and he yeah. goes, you know, that Detroit, that that real kind of uh, Detroit electro sound. So I wanted to kind of do that, and you know, 
I think uh, I think Black Milk is as also has kind of picked up Dilla's mantle a little bit in that regard. Where Shouts he does out that, Black Milk. Yeah, he does like a nice mix of like his sample shit, but then he gets in his Tronic shit, and that's kind of what it was with Mothership Land for me. So I got that out of my system. I talked about my urban angst and 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 in the only the way I I know how to because I. I'm not a very, at least I wasn't then, I wasn't a very politically conscious person, but mm-hmm. I was a very socially conscious person. Uh, and so I talked about the world around me through that lens on Mothership Land. Once I got that out, I had turned 30. And being 30, like I was saying, it was just like sort of like an understanding. It's like uh, I wear glasses. So, you know, every couple of years you have to get your lenses uh you have to go get an eye exam and your lenses get possibly swapped out if your eyesight has gotten worse, which glasses are a fucking joke because they make your eyes worse the longer you wear them. So inevitably you're going to have to get a new prescription. Um, But I, I, I likened, I have a friend, he's also a dope MC. He's in, he was in sciences, dopely crew. His name is, his rap name is no ability. And his real name is Jelani. He just turned 30 on Friday, the same, same day as my pride my album dropped and he was asking me about thirties, you know, in our group chat. And I was like, it's like getting a new prescription in your glasses, <laughs> you know, like you're in your living room and everything, nothing changed in your living room, but you see things differently now with the <laughs> prescription, you know, like the world may have not changed incredibly in that, year span you know or whatever but 30 sort of gives you know societal pressures and other things and just maturity kind of gives you a new prescription a new lens to see the world through and that's kind of where i was like also do you remember this era was super street this was also the era where streetwear died 2010 and 2011 <laughs> streetwear remember streetwear is dead yeah, streetwear is dead was a thing like uh, we got out of our purple and turquoise and yellow clothes and tight turquoise tight jeans and and supras and oh my gosh and nuka watches and good wood jesus pieces and snapbacks (laughs) (laughs) and the the retro kids yeah yeah uh that sort of streetwear is dead moment where i was like you know what streetwear is kind of dead and i'm i'm and the name fresh daily was starting to uh, be a curse a little bit because d- during the streetwear era it was a blessing let me tell you <laughs> when everyone was like oh we're off this we're off this but now my name is fresh daily and fresh daily was never about the name fresh daily was never about like gear or sneakers or anything it was just about uh quality control and being uh consistent which i you know my my boy natural told me those are the two cornerstones to any successful brand is uh, quality control and consistency, right? Do meaning doing something really well, and then being able to duplicate that process. And so that's what the name Fresh Daily meant. Fresh meaning the 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 quality control, fresh, and uh, consistency daily, doing it every day. But you know, it took on a, a dual meaning in that era of everyone, you know, getting fly and streetwear and sneakerwear and that hype. The, you know, that was really hype beast era. Uh, yep. But when that shit died down and everything became like heritage wear, 
Do you remember this? There was like a heritage where everyone was wearing like red wing boots in New York and oh, yep. Yep. heavy ass denim and everything yep. was about heritage brands and, you know, and, and so like, I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm a grown up now. I'm 30. This is, yeah. You know, it's all about, uh, my shawl neck cardigans and, uh, my, my seven, my, my mock toed boots <laughs> and like my, you know, like my, uh, chambray shirts buttoned to the neck, you yeah, know, like, yeah. you know, that kind of aesthetic <laughs> presented itself in the music. And I wanted something that would, I wanted something that would reflect that musically to let people know, Hey, I'm not just, I'm not Kia shine. That's rapping about how fresh I am. You know, like I'm not, I'm not like this guy that's just rapping about sneakers or something. Not that I ever was. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. Did you ever, um, you know what Jack Threads was? Of course. Dude, I think streetwear died when Jack Threads started popping off. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, it, that, was a, that was a thing. And also when, when the hundreds got into Zoomies, <laughs> they got into like... Uh, Paxson, when you could go when when kids at the mall didn't have to hunt, you know, because there was a thing about streetwear. It's like you kind of had to hunt for it. You had to know someone in England. You had to know someone in Japan and hit them up. Or you know, online retail wasn't even huge like that then, and so yeah. you had to like know a guy and or travel and you know like re- read these Japanese magazines. That was this what was what made it so dope. My um my close friends at the time um they started this was like the peak of of hype beast culture which was just yeah. a very strange thing they started a brand called Dead Heart NYC it was they were like these little leather pins that like um they were they looked did you, did you ever watch Courage the Cowardly Dog growing up uh huh you know that that wicked ass cat that was just always causing trouble and he had the fucking like triangle head I don't I I vaguely remember that. All right, anyway, so they I'm started. Old. I'm bro, I'm old, old. <laughs> Anyways, I was 30 in in 2010. So <laughs> they um they started making these little leather cut pins out of. They'd like take a Louis Vuitton bag or or an MCM bag and they'd cut these little shapes out of it and they'd sell them for like ten dollars a pop. And all of a sudden, every rapper in New York was wearing them and, and fucking 50 cent was wearing them and mac miller was wearing them at concerts and like right after that i just remember everything sort of going downhill and all of us getting sucked into jack threads and h&m and zara and like all mm. of these different brands you remember, were you were these guys sewing an x on the yes. heart too? yes i remember them yep. yep i remember them oh no accessories were big do you remember d and ricky doing the lego hearts Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The Lego hearts, the pins <laughs> yeah, that were yeah. made of Legos. Yeah. It was a huge moment. You know, Questlove was wearing one. Yeah, man. Shout out. It was Quest. an interesting, interesting time, you know, like a super interesting time, especially in New York. It feels like <laughs> after that, it was like, it was like that there was still, um, I don't know, the years following just got much more serious, much more mature. It was a different, yeah. it was a different light in New York city, like post 2013. Um, and, and I just remember it distinctly, you know, all of a sudden all the kids were wearing like these draped shirts that were super long and, yes. and um, long line, long, long line, line clothing. Yep. Uh, yep. Oh my God. I fell victim. I definitely <laughs> fell too. victim. Me too. Me too. I but feel, um, what a time, bro! Yeah, you're man. It, really it's, transporting me back here. It's solid to reminisce on on all of it this, is. And, and just like kind of remember the music that kind of got us through it. And and uh, and and you were right there, man. So I, yeah, so, Quiet Life was like me saying, "Hey, I'm not, I'm not that guy." 
I'm not that guy, you know? So, um, and, but just really just talking about, for me, what was really important was your dad knows what his drink is at the bar, you know? And Mm -hmm. he has his cologne he's been wearing for 25 years. And you, and it's to the point that you go somewhere and you smell that cologne and it makes you think of your dad. Or if your dad is meeting you at a bar, you can order his drink ahead of time for him because you know, this is what he does. And so like that album to me was like, I'm a grown up. I'm the sum total of my life's experiences to this point, And I know who I am and this is what I want to present. But like the finer things, I don't need to be mixy and be out at the club every day because I'm a grown up. And which is, and, and in hindsight is kind of <laughs> silly and nutty because no grown up. You know, if you have to tell someone I'm a grown ass man, you're not a grown ass <laughs> man, right? So, like, that was like that problem was me saying I'm a grown ass man. That was fresh daily, you know. And like, at at now 41, 30, 30 year old me saying I'm a grown ass man is absolutely nuts. But <laughs> that was my declaration. The quiet life was my declaration to the world, uh, sonically. You know, like really being my own A and R from doing the album artwork to choosing the beach, choosing the order of it, um, really presenting and saying uh, it was, it was that Jay-Z moment where he, where he was saying, we don't wear jerseys anymore. We wear button ups, you know, that moment where uh, it it was like that death of auto tune moment, you know, for me. Um, And, and weirdly, it resonated. And I think I have to give a lot of credit to my manager at the time. Shout out Craig uh, and Mel from Apartment Number 7, who really helped me market that. But yeah, and it, it resonated. And it's a lot of people's favorite project, which is what which is what throws me up against the wall that Mothership Land is what found you and what you like the most. Because that's, pe- that's what I feel like is people's second favorite mm-hmm. project. Uh, and I can kind of categorize my fan base by what people found in one and that and what makes them that type of fan because Mothership Land quietly is my favorite project that I've yeah. done. It's a masterpiece and, to me, man. Like hundred percent. I'll put it up against anybody any any of your favorite rappers albums, I'll put Mothership Land right up against it. That's that how means much a I, lot. That means a lot. Love. Because I know what I know what it took for me to make Mothership and I and I know all of the important uh you know, uh, targets it hit for me, you know, but my second favorite project is, is the quiet life and everyone, uh, it's a, it seems like it's everyone's favorite, which is why I made part two. Okay. So that was, that was actually going to be a, a question for me. It was like 10 years later, you have the chance to, to make any project you want, wipe the slate clean. Why was it so important to, um, to sequelize, a quiet life. And, and, um, did you feel, I find the title so interesting, right? A quiet life. Um, do you find that that is a, what is that like? How has that philosophy sort of looked like in practice for you now being a 41 year old? Um, and why do you feel it was so important to highlight yet again for your fan base? You know, I never intended for there to be this, (laughs) this, this gap between them, Mm. you know, in a perfect world, it would have come out way sooner, maybe Mm. closer to 
the Brooklyn Good Guy project. It would have maybe come out a little closer to that. But life uh, finds a way. <laughs> you know? uh, the way, you know, just really just life got between it, um, between me making music projects. And I think that's a fault in terms of the consistency of things, yeah. you know, the quality control and consistency. Because, you know, if we want to talk about underrated and shit, I feel like I'm wildly underrated, but I did it to myself. Um, because the quality control has never left, but the consistency did. I, the, I'm putting up Sade numbers in terms of album releases, <laughs> space between album releases, you know? Like, uh, think about oh. how much music you found in high school, right? That's yeah. four years. Yeah. But then think about how much music you found in college, which is another subsequent four years. Yeah. So that's eight years. Think how much music has come out in that time that you found and has shaped who you are as a person. My gosh. So I took that amount of time between projects. Yeah, and man. that's kind of crazy. For all intents and purposes, I might as well be a new artist to many people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, For sure. So, so why The Quiet Life? Well, I always said I was going to do a part two to it. I just didn't mean to take this this long. <laughs> well, let, let's let's like pause and, and, and talk about that, right? Yeah. So, so what was this gap between 30 and 41 like? And what, what or I, I guess let's even preface that with what were your expectations of yourself um, as, as a rapper, as a recording artist, when you put out Mothership Land, when you put out A Quiet Life, when you put out A Brooklyn Good Guy? What what were what were your expectations of yourself then, and then how did you kind of navigate potentially meeting those uh, failure to meet those, and then how what happened to where you ended up spending ten years away from a microphone or from releasing a public microphone? Let's say right, right. So in that time, and you held up a vinyl in the beginning of this interview. You held up a vinyl, and I'm on it, and then so. That shows it in that time I've been, you know, making my appearances and I, I could I could easily walk over to to my, uh, you know, my vinyl case and pull out record after record after record of uh, guest appearances of which mm -hmm. I've made a bunch in that time um, so that to keep the name going one and also um, to be appreciative of the people who, who still find me uh, a very potent lyricist or MC. And also, uh, you know, sometimes getting a check for real raps is a beautiful thing. <laughs> you know? um, but my my expectations, I think, when Mothership Land came out, I wanted to be Odyssey. You know, you know the MC Odyssey. Oh my MC gosh! Producer? Hell yeah! I wanted to be Odyssey. I wanted to be someone like Odyssey in the sense that I could tour overseas. I could, you know, I could tour here, and you know, Odyssey at the time lived five six blocks from my house so i wanted somebody i could i wanted a life whereby i could still be at the coffee shop and see people locally and but still tour and still i wanted music to be my sole source of income and uh it's weird because i knew that my music would be accepted by the fans but i think with mothership land i wanted i wanted my peers to be like Yo, he's one of us. Yeah, he he he's that guy, you know. Mm. And so uh, when it's when it started to open up those opportunities for me slowly, and I mean very slowly, uh, I realized like, yo, I just got to keep just doing me and not worrying about that, and just really talking from my perspective because I don't have this uh, ego driven part of my MC ability to be the best. 
I don't think that's what I've, I don't think that's what my purpose as an artist is, is to be the best. I think my purpose is to talk my shit from my perspective. Right. So, and, and to do it to the best quality and, and ability I'm, I can. And so with the quiet life, I was like, this is going to be the one that kind of like cements people in their mind, like, like a Mac Miller or, this is going to be the one that makes him be like, he's the MC or a blue or Odyssey mm-hmm. or a black milk or someone in that lane of like indie artist who, yeah. who is consistently booked for stuff like a Merce, you know, Elzai, Elzai. Right. Um, this is going to be the one. And for a lot of people, it did leave that indelible mark, but you know, uh, external life while, while fresh daily was being celebrated, uh, Mike Richardson behind the music was still struggling, you know, working a day job, trying to pay rent, uh, dealing with a slumlord, uh, starting a new relationship, uh, trying to figure it out, you know, dealing with um, a parent with who has mental illness, like reconnecting with a father. You know, they, there was all this external stimulus that uh, I had to deal with in my personal life. Uh that sometimes made pursuing, I, I was very hesitant to jump bo- both heels into artist life. I always mm. had one foot in a day job, you know, very one one foot in the mundane nine to five life, and also you know creating as a as an illustrator and a graphic designer. That though, all these are factors that played into me my slow process and also you know there are people who create music as a practice who every day write every day make beats you know every day make music as a practice i'm a person that creates under two circumstances i'm either hired or inspired either someone has hit me up and paid me for a verse or inspiration has struck me and i feel compelled to have this cathartic self-expression so um because I don't create as a practice, sometimes time lapses between projects happen like that. I think though, with The Quiet Life, The Quiet Life was the first project of mine. Actually, no, that's a lie. Mothership Land and The Quiet Life, hand-to-hand brother projects, was the first time in my creative career where I was working almost daily on music. And that was because I was unemployed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so again, it's a time versus money yeah. thing. I, I didn't have the money, uh, but thankfully I had the time. And with Mothership Land, uh, you'll see uh, on the Bandcamp uh, liner notes, uh, Ben Amin. Ben Amin was uh, a producer and engineer who went to um, the NYU, NYU Clive Davis Recording Academy, NYU. So I, he had access to a studio. And that's how I was able to record for free. Right. Uh, and once I had free access to to a studio, I was in there all the time. I didn't have a job. <laughs> right. So, you know, I was in there writing and record. And he was, uh, you know, in school to be an audio engineer and needed to practice. So it was auspicious in that regard. I was able to get that project done. Then with The Quiet Life, uh, I was in between jobs or working part-time at one job, the other one, but I had a manager who was like, I'll put up the money for your studio time. And so 
because I had that assistance, I was able to consistently create. And so you got those projects right after the other. In a perfect world, had those had those circumstances been conditions been as auspicious, I might have created consistently. But again, just you know, life kind of getting in the way a little bit. Right. Uh, and then with the Brooklyn good guy, um, <laughs> this is gonna really make me sound like a broke ass in hindsight. With the Brooklyn good <laughs> guy, um, Converse Converse Rubber Tracks was a, a studio. Uh, of which my friend Ben Amin became the assistant manager at. So I had a I had a pretty open open uh, door there to record whenever I wanted. So the Brooklyn Good Guy came about that way, and then on top of that, uh, Converse, which which owned Converse Rubber Tracks, uh, was really interested in the project and was like, "Hey, why don't we put this out as a promotional you know piece?" So. I guess I got by with a little help from my friends for those for a lot yeah. of these things. Um, it's it's also important to note though that that in this era, like it wasn't common, um, and we weren't really at the point where like kids were getting a billion streams off of an iPhone recording. You know, no. I think I think like you really needed, and that was a, a huge barrier of entry for me as well. Is like you needed resources to record resources. and sound good, um, and then don't even get me started on actually like buying beats and like it it was there was there and and getting blog placement man i remember the first time i romanticized the fuck out of how my rap career was gonna go right <laughs> like i was like i was like i'm a record and write great shit and i'm gonna send it to do dope boys and they're gonna love it so much they're just gonna post it up because that's probably how it works right that's how fresh daily got up there that's how tyler the creator oh tyler the creator was never on two you didn't boys, get up that. and i was just about to tell yeah. you i was just about to tell you that angst that anger that yeah. tyler and them had about two remember fuck two dope boys oh, two era dope boys yep on yep. future because they had that same they romanticized it the same way yeah. and submitted time and time again and yeah. got rebuffed and that built this resentment with them because it was gatekeeping. It was like, it was, it was, was hip hop gatekeeping. It was like all of the, mo for the majority of people who are um, writing hip hop music. I don't know if, if you found this the same thing. You said you work when you're inspired or hired. For me, I wrote to like escape. Like I was dealing with a terrible living situation. And the, my, my therapy, the way I self-soothed was by putting it on paper. And I did it so much that I got better and better and better. And I'm like, man, I was dealing with 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 problems in comparison to to uh, to to where hip hop was started and the communities where hip hop was started are very small um, and, and and kind of uh, minute in comparison with the, the struggles that I was facing. Um, that being said, it was still a very real struggle, and struggle is very much a relative um, experience. But I was like, I. I can recognize even at 16, 17, that I had more resources than a lot of people that were that were making hip hop. And so when I messaged two dope boys and they hit me back with basically a, a, a list of, of uh, prices that I could pay for exposure, I was I was like, I was like, I don't have that. I was I was defeated, man. Um, and it was terrible. And it's like now I think J uh, Joey Badass 1999, that was probably the first like mixtape that i was aware of that was like recorded in a closet um that sounded really good and like started making me think like oh i could i could do this in my closet like for real um and then i feel like since then there's been much more like a diy acceptance into the space but when you were making music man it was like you had to go big or go home um mm -hmm. there was no time for a like slouch in the studio yeah there were a lot, no, a lot of hamilton was recording at home for a large portion of that 
I wasn't familiar with Charles Hamilton, I don't think. Charles Hamilton was an MC in that blog era. He was his his whole his whole shtick was kind of like Sonic the Hedgehog and wearing pink kind of um but yeah, he was recording on he was he he was I want to say early proponent of of DIY uh hip hop. Yeah. But then but yeah, I think you had to have a lot of resources and like I'm glad you said that because you know I was starting to feel bad like damn I was really <laughs> I was really operating out of deficit you know like I was really I was really I mean I, I didn't have it you know Man. frankly you know and the mentality poverty is such a sick mentality because when you're in it it's like it's like uh it it's a mire like if you get sick you can't go to the the doctor because you don't have the money and if you then you'll progressively get worse and then if you get worse you can't work if you won't work you don't have money which will make you more sick and then you you know so it's like it's these problems and and poverty is it, people need to be i think way more compassionate about those who don't have uh because it that that mentality makes you feel like you'll never be able to do anything yeah. um and i've had to break those chains in my personal life and really understand that like I'm not bound by them. But for the longest time, that was my mentality. I was really bound by it in, in a lot of ways. And so I was like, I don't got money to record, you know, but in hindsight, I thought like maybe if I would have sacrificed this or sacrificed that, I would have taken that money to do this. And if I would have had the foresight of the, of the presence of mine, you know, like, but uh, people in poverty are bred to be consumers. We're not, we're not, we're not, there's not an idea of like, you can build your own thing and, and go forth and make money. You, you're bred to be a consumer, take, mm. you know, give your money to someone else. And that's how you buy some sort of social infrastructure uh, or status, you know, so some kind of social status is by buying into something. And yeah. so instead of creating something and having people buy into you and sort of like learning to invest in myself, uh, is something that didn't happen to me till my mid thirties. You know, it, yeah. I feel like it happened to a lot of people way younger, and and you can you can see that by their successes. But um, you know, just back to the music portion of it, um, with that Brooklyn Good Guy project that Converse put out, that kind of reignited reignited a spark because uh, you know, 2012 and 2013 were the was the first time that I was able to go on tour overseas in Europe. And, you know, I played uh, Madrid, Barcelona, Berlin, uh, Budapest. <laughs> so um, sick. Yeah, just uh, Brussels, uh, Frankfurt, you know, just like 700 people to, you know, to 1,200 people. Some of them who don't speak English just <laughs> singing in the chorus of this shit is just, it, it was fucking sick. And it was, it was a reaffirmation that I'm doing, I'm doing the right thing. You know, I'm doing something that is of note and worth and creatively uh, changing people's lives or how they interpret music. Absolutely. In that time frame, though, I started an event series called Beat House. Mm-hmm. And I saw the ascent of Beat House to the public consciousness, how people responded and reacted to it and how it gave other producers a platform. But it went like, it rocketed. It just said, it was an idea. It was a concept that I didn't have to work as hard at as emceeing. It was just like, come to this thing, have a good time, hear artists that you find on SoundCloud, but you, you've never seen in real life. And there was already a sort of culture of that on the West Coast, but not here in, in New York. 
well, not in New York, I'm not in New York anymore, but in New York, the cult beat making culture was beat battles, of course, and battles, you know, New York. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it's pretty much one long table and like five producers going at it, you know, playing, playing their beats with drops, you know, dissing each other and, and stuff like that. And super creative, super great, but really insular turning into a weird circle jerk of, of people, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't as creative as say producers playing a, a set like a DJ would, like and a boiler so room. Af- yeah, after after I I saw that, I had seen a couple of shows in New York thrown by this record label called Paxico, and I was like, man, this is what I wanted to do, but this was being done by like white guy transplants. And they were really nice guys, and they're my friends. But at the time, my mindset was still mothership land. Like, you know, this is this is a gentrified version, kind of, of what I wanted to do. It was culturally relevant. The artists were black, but I was like, this is not. This is super dope, but it's super DIY. There's there's like, how do you how does one turn this into? how does one turn this into something that has cultural impact? Right. And for me, for me, because I don't want to make that sound like I'm dissing them. They were super dope, super great people, but I saw what they were doing. And I was like, this is what I wanted to do. I just didn't know that anyone would come out. Hmm. But here I am. I'm coming out. I think the first show I was, was like, uh, uh, I can't even remember who it was. Honestly, I think it might've been like Obliv and, or count base D or something like that. And I immediately was like, I've got to insert myself into this scene and really just do it. And so I did. And it took off. And once I saw how how rapid the ascent of that of Beat House was from uh, a local event series to a radio show to a tour to playing out of to playing South by Southwest with just Blaze. Like wow. it, it, it really kind of it really kind of took off wings, you know. Right. Everyone really was was gravitated to it. I kind of put making music for as Fresh Daily to the side, right? For the five almost six years that I did Beat House, I put out no music. So, what was it like, kind of letting go for a little bit of of, of Fresh Daily and kind of releasing all expectation, releasing the romanticization? Because it's like I speak about this a lot. Um, when you are, and it's why I, I, I talk to, to musicians and why I get so much, I guess, uh, why I'm so fascinated by it is because we all kind of follow, whether we know it or not, the same sort of path of like the hero's journey. Like it's this arc that we kind of move ourselves through. It's this, it's the romanticization of the self, right? Understanding that like, I have this thing and I can get better at it. And it's something that, that is potentially unique to me. And this could be my ticket to, um, a better life, a better destination. And there's there's the separation of of the self, who I am. And then you also have this this thing over here. It's like, oh, this is fresh daily, right? And if you're not careful, fresh daily can become the self. Um, and that has its perks and also um, and 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 dangers um, in the sense that like if you become too much of fresh daily, you can get lost, you can get lost in the sauce and, and lose who you are personally. You can right. get lost in the ego of it. Um, but it's also, there becomes a point where it's like, sometimes it, it feels like what you were saying, like when you turn 30, there is almost this need to switch out the the prescription and you had fresh is gone. How did you kind of uh, put away 
this identity and what was the process like of kind of releasing the expectations of this side of yourself and moving in a new direction entirely. And did this like kind of coincide with your move to Oakland? Was this before? Uh, did all these events kind of transpire in, in unison? No, um, it, it didn't happen. It didn't all happen simultaneously. It, it happened. It happened in a gradual process, you know, on in quiet life or what was it? Either quiet life or mothership land where I have fresh is gone. I sort of hint at it. I, I sort of begin fantasizing about not creating music anymore because there's, there was this kind of pressure in New York, you know, in 2000, uh, in 2008 or 2009, I was in a really bad car accident. I was riding my bike through Brooklyn and a suburban sped through a red light and it snapped my tibia and my fibula out the leg. Fucking and uh, I had to spend two months in the hospital and two months learning how to walk again. Um, in that two months in the hospital, from my hospital bed, I saw like Mickey Fax blow up. I saw Theophilus London blow up. Mm. And sort of this Brooklyn Renaissance that you're talking about on a on a micro level, on a level that where I was, because I think you were looking at it from afar, but in real time, that that Brooklyn Renaissance consisted of Mellow X, mm. um, myself, Chris Faust, who at the time Chris Faust went by print. Uh, Noah Kane was a part of that. This kid named Wordspit was a part of that. This kid named Out of Sight, who now has, is a Grammy winner. You know, there was so many dope artists. There was a there was a girl. I can't say her old name, but I can say her name now is Lakaley Forty Seven. I don't know if you know her. Yeah. She's Lakaley Forty Seven, and we were all part of this very local scene. Um, to which, if you ever watch this HBO show called How to Make It in America, that yeah. show is eerily creepy because it feels like as though someone was watching us and made a show about it. It really like New Yorkers from our era who watch that show really feel super spooked out or at least can be like holy shit that's literally us where we were what we were doing. And and it was happening in that time. Um and so so there was kind of like you know Jesse Boykins the 3rd was also around in that time. So came wow. out of that. And in that in that moment in that moment it felt like every it wasn't competition per se, but it was like, yo, who's gonna be the one of us to blow? Who's gonna be the you know, who's gonna right. we're all on the these blogs and stuff, but like who's gonna be the one to like get it to the next level? And I think everyone, every all of us had like individual slices and taste of success. But for for those two months I was I was out of commission, I watched so many people from that circle kind of blow the fuck up. And oh, but I came out of it triumphant. I mean, I, I played Brooklyn Hip Hop Festival. I played a bunch of shows. You know, I, it didn't. Nothing stopped for me. But I, I felt that pressure, and then I also felt. You know, I, I struggle a little bit with social anxiety, not okay. much, but a little enough to before every show, pre-show jitters, just the crazy stomach going crazy. <laughs> you know, and then after the first song, I'm good. I'm right. I'm in the zone. But uh, that just that, oh, that that nervousness, that that need to like, yo, when when you when are you dropping new shit? I'll never forget on that train ride. From when I was telling you earlier, I was dating a girl who lived in the Bronx. I was staying with her over an hour and a half train ride, and the first time I ever ate an edible, oh, no. first time I ever ate an edible was on my birthday. And I don't remember. This is this might be 2010, so I might have just turned 30. Or, yeah, this is, I want to say 2010. And 
I was dating this girl and things weren't going fantastic, but I just ate an edible. My friend Piso, aka Piso the Earth Toad King, who I was in a collective with, with Homeboy Sandman and stuff, he giving me a, a brownie with no instructions. <laughs> no instructions as to maybe break this up into thirds or fourths and eat a piece. And, and so remember I was telling you I would bide, bide my time and stay out in Brooklyn as long as I could yep. until I had to go back. And so we go to a restaurant. He gives me the brownie. And what do you? What does a fat kid do with a brownie? You know, like, <laughs> I, I ate the entire thing. Not no, and I, I wasn't much of a smoker at all. And so I had no idea. I didn't feel anything. I was like, oh, this is what it, y'all talking about. And so I went to a cafe and opened up my laptop and started working. And this feeling of you know when you drank too much and the room is starting to spin a little. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. I started to get that, and I started to get extreme paranoia. Oh, yeah. And, oh, my God. I was like, you know what? Uh, I can Brooklyn feel it police- in my chest right now. Like, oh, I, my God. I'm, police, my body's the police academies, The police academy's training was uh, was <laughs> around the corner from this. And oh, all of a sudden, it. like 14 cadets come in, and I'm like, they know I'm high. They're <laughs> on drugs. You know, I started freaking out. So I was like, I'm getting on the train. I'm going to go to the Bronx. And I'm going to try to like take a nap while I'm there on the train. And so I get on the train. I, t- I have my backpack. I put it on my lap, hold it in front of me and put my head down. And, you know, I, I look up occasionally to see the train where it would stop them. And, um, you know, sometimes you nod off on the train and you, you lean on the person next to you. So, and then, you know, they might jab you with the elbow to wake you up. Yeah. And so I, the guy jabs me in the, in the side and I'm like, Oh, I'm so, I'm sorry. He goes, and I'm sitting up straight, and he jabs me again. And I'm, I just look over. I'm like, "What's your problem?" And he, he nods in front of me. He's like, "And there's a kid with his backpack on, standing over me." He's like, "Yo, yo, you're you're that guy. You make music, right? I saw you in Double XL." And I was like, "Yeah." And he's and I'm fucked up. I'm like, "Hi." <laughs> I'm like, "Get me off of this train!" Please. Oh my god. And you know, like I'm looking, and I can see the. The train station's whizzing in the window behind, and that, it, like, there's nausea coming over me. And I'm looking up, and it's like you never, you know, like when you're drunk, you lift your head up, and then you feel like your head lift up a second afterward, like you have that, like, that loosely <laughs> slow delight. motion wave over you. And I'm that tracer up, shit, or you're just like, and it's like this kid is like bright eyed, bushy tail, and he's just like, yo, you're that guy, right? You, you make music, right? And I was like, yeah, man, I'm fresh. He was like, yo, like, yo, that's dope, man, yo. And I was like, okay. And then I had this really <laughs> existential moment where I'm like, is he asking me if I'm myself? Like, he's like, yo, that that's you, right? And I was like, am I me? Like, I'm really bugging oh, out. Oh no. I'm really right, bugging yeah. out. And so he's and so like we have this kind of awkward exchange. There's a little bit of silence. You know, we're just like nodding at each other now. And then he goes, So what's next? So I'm interpreting this as as uh, this kid appeared as a universal messenger to 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 influence a self dialogue. I don't know. I don't know. But I do remember him asking me what's next, and I remember being high and a little annoyed, and not wanting to offend him, and just being like, you know, I don't know, man. I don't know. And then putting my head back down, and that was kind of the end of our exchange. But that moment was just. Kind of the beginning of me writing "Fresh Is Gone." <laughs> like, uh, like I, I, this is like flirting with like maybe I don't want to do this shit forever, which is a lie because you know, like 
to always be able to create is going to, I'll be, I'll be 57. And like, if, if the idea to create something happens, I'm going to create it despite whether it's a song, if it's a, if it's a piece of pottery, if it's an umbrella, <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, I'm a creator and creators are going to create. So, uh, but the idea of like that pressure of like having to go out and perform and the pressure of like creative output. And if you don't have creative output, you're not relevant. You don't exist as a person. If you don't consistently, you know, the blogs put a lot of pressure, you know, like you, if, oh if gosh, I didn't put out yeah. a song or something and people, people like you fucking fell off bros, but to this day, there are people that comment on my YouTube page like you you took too long. Where'd he go? Where'd yeah, he go? I, I've seen them. I was like, man, Fresh really was was on it. I'm like, it the, the pressure's immense, it man. Ends. And it's like it's 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 we forget that it's it's artistry is, is self-expression. And in a lot of ways, it's 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 some act, it's an act of self-soothing, it's an act of creative liberation. And it's when you start formalizing it. Um, and, 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 and churning it out, that's when you really start to see the stagnation of, of talent when it's like, I prefer for you to, to drop, to fall off the face of the earth for 10 years, uh, for all intents and purposes and come back with a quiet life too. And from the jump, you are no slouch. You have not lost a, a step, mm. but it, you can tell that you arrived here because you needed to. You arrived here because it was time. Yeah. And I think that is that is so beautiful, man. Thank when you. I was listening to A Quiet Life 2, instantly, I was like, he's still got it. He's still there. He's still <laughs> fresh daily. But he was, able to, he, was, he was able to go and live his life and prioritize what needed to happen mm-hmm. in the moment. Prioritize this adventure with Beat House. Prioritize getting out of New York. Mm-hmm. And I, I can only imagine, Christian. like, dude, New York. Dude, Christian, New York you is get a... It. <laughs> I moved to California for the same, I'm guessing the same reasons. New York is, is, is this beautiful, it's this beautiful beast in the sense that it creates you. It, it shows you so many, so many truths and exposes you to so many cultures and ways of life. But if you're not careful, it will suffocate the shit. What's an abusive relationship with a beautiful woman? In our realm of life, it is one of the most yes. abusive places to, to live in America and it's it it clouds your judgment. It clouds your ability to see your future. Um, and you'll 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 look down on your train after asking what's next. And you, if you're not careful, ten years will fly by and you're still there. I, I I admire so much that you came back after all this time and put out a quiet life too. Man, it's a fucking excellent project. Like I've only sat with it for two days now, so I, I can't really we can't really sit here and dissect it in all of its glory. Maybe that's for another conversation. But what I do know is that this is the perfect this is one of your strongest projects. Okay. Like if I'm if I'm being real, like mothership land, I'm probably gonna give this way more listens than I would to Quiet Life. And I love the Quiet Life. When it came out, I had that shit in my ears all day. But this is is so um it's so perfect for right now. And and it's your flag at the top of the mountaintop of like, yo, I'm 40 now and I'm still doing this shit because I love it, because I want to, because I can, not because you're waiting on what's next, because like you're waiting for, for um, these expectations of me to be fulfilled on your end. And so I, I don't know, man, hats off to you. Thank you, man. Um, and how does it, how does it feel to like... I, Two hours in, we finally get to the new project. Yeah, but, but no, I don't mind. I mean, it's, I feel relieved because, you know, I, I'm glad that you feel as though that, you know, like this is the flag. But, uh, you know, to be fully transparent, I've been working on Quiet Life 2 since 2014. 
since I was at since I was at Converse Rubber Tracks. You know, like a lot of these songs were written right after the Brooklyn Good Guy. Uh, but you know, like I said, like once that beat house shit kind of took off for me, I feel like there are more people that know me in the community through the guy that hosts and throws beat house as a rapper, which is to, absolutely nuts to me, you know, cause a lot of my identity is, is fresh jelly DMC. Mm. So to, to have people not even know me as that is almost a little refreshing. And so mm. to, to be, have been working on this from 2014, 2015, 2016, all the way to, I, I moved to Oakland in 2017. And so, uh, I want to say 85 to 90% of the project had been done at that point, just not mixed or mastered. Uh, Science was my roommate for three years. And so a large portion of it was written at Rubber Tracks and recorded there. And the other portion was recorded with Science. And uh, he had a hard drive loss and I I lost some songs and some songs I had to re-record here in Oakland. Uh, So it's been a journey and a process really, you know, from, from like 2014, 2015, to now and a lot of those songs you know a lot of songs where i'm I'm talking about gentrification in brooklyn you know like Mm. i don't live in brooklyn anymore but it's still relevant you can still buy american spirits next to fronto leave in a a bodega and 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 gentrified as bedsty or fort green where i'm initially from and so um it does feel like a very very east coast project and my music is going to be unapologetically east coast and me um, despite me being here, but um, I listen to it now to answer your question. How does it feel? I listen to it and it takes me home. It takes me back to Brooklyn despite yeah. being here. Me too. It takes me back to me Brooklyn. Too. And I think I've done that and I've succeeded and I feel relieved because I have a bunch of new music. I've got music with Homeboy Salmon. I've got music with Sky Zoo. I've got music with Mr. Motherfucking Esquire. I've got music <laughs> with a bunch of people, you know, like, and a bunch of new music that I'm really excited to give people. You know, now I just felt like I couldn't, I've been talking about The Quiet Life 2 coming since to like 2015. Like, yo, Quiet Life 2 is coming. And pe- at this point, people are like, yeah, right. Until now, you know, but until now, people are like, yeah, right, that shit ain't coming. Like, you've been saying that shit since 25, it's like six <laughs> years you made us, you know. So I feel relieved that I was like, here it is, the thing I've been talking about for five years. <laughs> I promised you I would give it to you, it's here. And now that it's out, the floodgates are open. There'll be more coming shortly. I've got the itch again. Beautiful, man. So I guess, um, was it was it the container of COVID that like started showing you? It's like, hey, man. Uh, that thing that you've been talking about since 2015, it's time. Like, what? Why now? Why did you feel like now is the time to revisit Fresh Daily, the MC, as opposed to Fresh Daily, the host of Beat House? And 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 what what? Where is this feeling coming from now? To where you're like the floodgates are open, man. Let's go. You know, I I joke that uh, I've been constipated. <laughs> you know, creatively, <laughs> like just been constipated. Like. I feel like the and the blockage was quiet life too because I felt like I've been promising it for so long. I can't now just drop something else and people be like, "Hey, where's quiet life too?" And so now that it's out the way, after I pushed out that this beautiful lump, <laughs> you know, after I've gotten it out the way, <laughs> now the the door is open. Why now? Why now? Uh, everything is completed. You know, like. There's so many insane stories about this project from hard drives crashing to beats being beats being recorded like a great example is like um team natural with blue uh there's an there's a beat that's a twami beat 
Twami ended up, after I recorded that and sent it to him with Blues Verse years ago, like probably 2015, 2016, so much time had lapsed, he forgot about that and sold that beat to Pete Rock. Oh, no. <laughs> Damn, to Pete Rock, too. That's yeah. There's a crazy story. And then Pete Rock, I mean, Pete Rock, I, 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 how can you argue that? And then Pete Rock is telling him, oh, man, you know, this is going to be crazy. And, you know, we're going to get Nas on this. And I was, oh, shit. <laughs> what, what, what can I say to that? What Am I going to tell right, him no? Yeah. Don't send, you know. Like, <laughs> so uh, I had to, I had to hit, I didn't want to lose this blue verse. You know, blue verses are rare, especially now. Oh, my gosh, um, yeah. And, you know, blue blue blessed me with that verse, you know. Just I had done a verse for his, his project Open Shop and, he blessed me with this verse and you know we've always been super cordial and cool with each other so i was really excited to give the world a, a fresh daily and blue verse you know uh song yeah. rather uh and so i had chris keys recreate the beat but the first go around that he did it was perfect he recreated it completely from scratch all instruments i mean down to the drums there was a vocal sample in there there was a crystal water sample chris sang the sample and filtered it and like just recreate it. And then immediately was just like maybe a week or two after he was like, Hey man, you know, I think people are going to say I'm biting Twami and like, uh, I'm not comfortable. And I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I'm, I don't want to lose this blue. Like you don't understand. Like this was going to potentially be a single. I want to shoot. A, I had a video treatment in my mind for this. It's going to be awesome. I don't want to lose it. Could you please like maybe give it a second go? He gives it a second go, keeps the same feel, makes it more Chris Keys, still keeps the original feel to it, but he just makes it more himself. And it's perfect. I like it better than the original. And so like there's a bunch of stories like that with this project. Last night at the at the release party, I just I just ran through the the project for everyone and kind of just told like little narratives before and after every track about what it took to get there for some of these songs. And um you know, why now? It, it, there I want to say there's no real esoteric or personal reason for for it. It's just everything kind of lined up even up until the last minute. We we remastered the album. Literally, got the the final masters of the day before uh, on Friday. You know, on some Kanye shit. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, it's kind of crazy. It's 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 kind of crazy. But I'm happy it's here. I'm ha- the reception has been so warming and and so positive. The feedback has been so positive. And I'm not really making this for my detractors. I'm not making this necessarily for new fans. I'm making, I really respect my fan base. People like yourself who are like, yo, you made this. You know, when I moved to Oakland, they were, they were people that came up to me and was like, yo, I listened to you in high school. And while that made me feel incredibly old, I was incredibly grateful for it. <laughs> you know, like, I was like, you know, this, this kind of means, I mean, there was a kid at the release party yesterday who, has been following me since MySpace days. And wow. uh, people ask him all the time how he knows me. He's like, yeah, I was listening to this dude skating around New York I, to Mothership Land. And so to fucking beautiful, full man. circle, he's at the release party, you know, a decade later. Well, I didn't I didn't know him, you know. I didn't know him from a hole in the wall. Um, and so he, he's there, and, you know. And, and I think that's who I make 
this shit for. I mean, I make it for everyone, but I, I, if I'm going to be honest with myself, I don't think my music is stadium status. I don't think it's good. You know, it's you know, it's not. I don't think it's palatable across the board. Like my dad loves me, and so he's going to listen to it, but I don't think he's going to get it fully. You know what I mean? Mm, so I, yeah. I, I definitely know that my fan base is is who I'm catering to, and um, and the reception from those people. Uh, you know, my label head hit me and he was like, yo, we on the first day, we're like 90 percent recouped. So <laughs> I was like, congrats, my dog. You know, That's so it feels well good. earned. It feels good. It feels as though people have been genuinely waiting to hear from me. Um, yeah. And that even despite writing a lot of this material in like 2015, it's still relevant. And the beat selection is on point and what I have to say is on point and on people point, love the collaborations dude. and I, I couldn't be happier and I've got more dope music for people. If you like this, wait till the news, wait till you hear some new shit, yo, you know, dude, I'm so, I'm so excited. Um, and I'm so happy that you were able to kind of bring this, this journey full circle. Um, I could sit here and talk to you for, for probably another two hours and ask about <laughs> it's raining why here, so. this, why that. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I will, uh, I'll respect your time. Um, and I wanted to just kind of regurgitate. Um, well, actually, before I say that, just, you know, leave this knowing that there is something so special about the music you make to where I'm not the only person that is tuned in 10 years later who has been waiting when I saw that you were releasing a new, I didn't even know you were releasing a, a new album when I first reached out to you. I wanted to talk to you because you meant so much to me, man. Like you did so much for me. You cracked my, my, my brain open and showed me a whole new world simply by by expressing what was true to you right. and what you felt like you needed to get off of your chest. You so, made it easier for me to understand the black community. You made it easier for me to to understand that police brutality is not something to glaze over. You made me understand how important it is to, to be proud of, of who you are, uh, what you carry. You made me grateful to be a, a nerd man like that was one of my favorite things about your music is like i could tell that you just you just nerded out yeah. you know and 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 you were bringing that to hip-hop and that is so that's so needed um and so the fact that you had the other guy from myspace showing up at your fresh daily listening party 10 years later like that says leaps and bounds about you as a person about you as a musician um and about you as an artist and i think this is probably the perf most perfect way i could think of to sum this up but uh, you said one of your lyrics, me and my fans grow old together. And that is that's all true. across the globe. All across the globe, man. And uh, I am so happy to be here and so excited to tune in um, for, for future releases and so glad to have, have met you and, and put a, a character to the to the music. And um, hopefully we could when I come up to Oakland, we could chop it up, grab a beer and continue our conversations, man. Please, that I'd would love make to have me so happy, man. Are you uh, are you going to Outside Lands by chance? I absolutely loathe large gatherings okay. <laughs> like, never mind <laughs> festivals festivals parades i i i tend to uh avoid them like the plague uh just you know if i'm not like backstage and gonna rock or you know separated I'm, yeah so to i understand that, no, i'm sorry i, I probably won't no 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 Hundred percent understand, my man. But um, anyways, dog. Thank you so much. Let's let's keep in touch, and uh, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go keep listening to Quiet Life. Oh man, thank you so much, man. And uh, I guess I'll say, Quiet Life Two is out now. Uh, it's uh it's on High Water 
music, I believe highwatermusic.bandcamp.com. Let me just double check that. Yeah, highwatermusic.bandcamp.com. You can find it. It'll be uh today is what Sunday, uh Tuesday the 26th. It'll be on all streaming platforms. Uh physical release probably end of the year, top of next year for vinyl. Uh, I know I'll have physical cassettes in less than a month. So for those of you that still collect that cassettes and DIY culture and shit like that, nerds about that shit like me, you'll be out on cassette, uh, possibly CD too. Who the fuck still listens to CDs? I, I think a couple of people still do. There's people. There's people out there. So I'm going to do, so I'm gonna do those as well, but vinyl will probably be top of the year, uh, top of next year. Um, I'll certainly be picking that up. Where can people follow you? People can follow me at Fresh D O T Daily, Fresh Dot Daily, uh, on Twitter and Instagram. That's that's uh, this has been fantastic. It's been uh, creatively affirming. Uh, I feel really grateful to have done this. I'm grateful that you reached out to me. Um, I, please continue doing these. If I, um, if there's other people like science or anyone or that you would like to interview that I can alley oop your way, I'm more than happy to do so. I uh, I appreciate that more than you know. Just like sitting down with you has been such a weird full circle moment where it's just I don't know. It's just uh you realize that that life is um more malleable than I think that you initially think, um and that the the people that you admire can you can close those those circles, um and so I I would I would love to further that conversation with you. There are so many people uh, in that scene that 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 have influenced me so deeply. Um, so I, I really do. I really do appreciate that. Feel free to hit me up anytime, man. I appreciate that, Doug.